Pastor Stu, I'm going to ask you to come up and join me, would you please? You're going to preach. We have a custom in the church that Linda and I attended in England that before our pastors preached, we prayed for them. And I'd like to pray for you this morning as you bring God's word to us, if you don't mind. Father God, I thank you for my friend, my brother, my pastor. We lift him to you now and ask you to anoint him. That you will fill him with your spirit, that his words would be your words for us, and that we would leave changed, more like Jesus than when we entered. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 We are very blessed. Thank you, Doug. We are very blessed to have pastors who are retired but not retired. Uh, you don't retire from the calling God puts on your life. You may retire from vocational assignment, as I like to say it, but the calling remains. And Skyview is a place in which we are blessed by those who are not tired in retirement, but who sense the calling of God yet. I preach in relation to what's on your face. And if you look upset, my goal is to preach until you smile. No smiles. There's a quote that I've often used um, that goes something like this. Amidst all that is wrong in our world, discern the goodness of God and learn to give him thanks. For God is present in our life, he is present in our circumstance, he is present in every situation, in both the good times and the not-so-good times. And often what is challenging for us is to discern God's faithfulness when life gets difficult. But here we come together as God's people, not expecting that we all had the same week or the same experience, or perhaps even feel good to be here today, but of this we all come expecting, that the God of grace we've come to know through Jesus Christ awaits us here. I pray that as I share with you a brief message from a brief psalm, and all God's people says, I'm with you on that, <laughs> that we would discern what God may want to say to us. And so, in the spirit of prayer which has so wonderfully prepared us, I will ask you to pray this prayer with me as we turn to Psalm 70. I will read the psalm and we will listen to what God has laid on my heart. Let us pray. Almighty God, feed us with your word that we might be filled with the bread of life. Awaken and illumine us by your word. Amen. Be pleased, O God to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire to hurt me. Let those who say, aha, aha, can I just clarify? It is as if there are people publicly shaming, criticizing, poking fun at the psalmist 
perhaps for his faith and trust in Israel's God. So let those who say, aha, aha, turn back because of their shame. And let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. The word of the Lord. In a letter dated May 15, 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to his parents from prison. I read the Psalms every day, he says, as I have done for years even here in my prison cell. I know them and love them more than any other book. It makes sense to me that someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we all know in some ways a little about, would pray the Psalms, especially a psalm of personal lament like Psalm 70. Bonhoeffer, after all, had real enemies, and his life was in danger for resisting Nazi Germany's ethnic cleansing mission which we recall historically as the Holocaust. He waged a protest against those who used real weapons, death squads and gas chambers to kill thousands of people daily and would eventually pursue him until he was captured and executed in 1945. Bonhoeffers have the right to pray the Psalms, to pray Psalms like this. After all, his enemies threatened his life. They came after him. They sought to silence him. But what about you and me? I confess this morning that I oftentimes find it hard to relate to the Psalms. The language and sometimes the circumstance seems uniquely different to my own. And as a student of the Scripture, despite all the years of training as to how to enter and understand and read the text, there's sometimes when my heart just yearns for something that I can relate to. Have you been there? When I turn to the scripture, there's a part of me that just wants to find some resonance. My thought always goes to the illustration of somebody who's going through a hard time and just flips open the Bible and points with their finger and reads something that may not be very helpful because it doesn't seem that the Bible necessarily works that way. But I got to confess, there are times where I wish, where I was lined up, with what the scripture says. Over the years, I've learned a better approach to reading the scripture is to not begin necessarily with where I am, but with what the scripture wants to teach me. For after all, we pray this prayer as followers of Jesus, 
that God's will would be done and not our own. In fact, we believe that when we begin to seek first the kingdom of God and his ways, he will add all things unto us. Therefore, even in the approach of scripture, sometimes as desperately as I need something to speak to me, this past week, my son texted me a portion of scripture out of Romans, and this is what he said. This scripture just speaks to me so powerfully right now. It's like it's describing my life. And I felt that same tug and desire in me. But this morning, as we come to this text, I confess at first, I could not quite relate. I didn't find myself emotionally connected. And as I studied the text, I began to discern that perhaps God is wanting to show me something that I may not want to see. It's possible that often we can come to preaching moments and scripture studies with such an overwhelming need to hear what we think we need to hear from God when perhaps the better disposition is to say, God, may you speak to me according to your will. So how do we approach this text? If you noticed, it's a brief and urgent prayer. One commentator describes Psalm 70 as fragmented, scattered, and even disconnected. An honest-to-goodness outburst of where the psalmist finds himself in a moment of crisis. If you were to compare Psalm 70 with a lot of the psalms that we find in the Psalter, you would see that it lacks the eloquence, the logical sequence, and the length we associate with some of the other psalms. But as one commentator says, when you are in crisis, you want to be brief with your request. When you're going through difficulty, there's no time for Psalm 139 with all 140-odd verses. You pray Psalm 70. Have you been there? You know, Jesus was on the cross prayers praying An extract from Psalm 22 when he says what? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The brevity of this psalm and the way in which it's not necessarily eloquent, the way in which it comes to us as, as someone who is in a deep and challenging circumstance shows us something about the very nature of the journey of faith with Christ, that there are times, perhaps in our own experience in life, where we might not have the time to be eloquent or lengthy, but perhaps the desperation in our lives leads us to cry out. Like staccato notes, punctuating music, the sharpest of our needs, the deepest of our fears, the anxious cries for deliverance. However you want to think about the psalm and, and what I've just said, of this we all can be sure the psalmist kind of gets straight to the point. 
He, he begins by saying, oh God, deliver me, make haste to help me. There is not only a sense of urgency at the start of this prayer, but it returns even after he speaks about rejoicing in God. He says, I am poor and needy in verse 5. Hasten to me, O God. It seems that throughout the prayer, from beginning to end, he is still awaiting God's intervention and God's salvation. I've often wondered whether my prayer life is this honest, this vulnerable, this pointed. You know, the danger of praying in front of people is, is that you, you pray so that they would think you know how to pray. <laughs> There's also the temptation in corporate times like this of prayer where, where perhaps we would presume that when we hear the eloquence with which our beloved Pastor Doug just prayed, which I'm grateful for, that this is the only way in which God listens to his people. We may think, that prayer has to sound a certain way, look a certain way, when we only feel a certain way. But Psalm 70 would say, even when we feel like our world's becoming dark, even when we feel like we are being pursued, even when we feel like others are speaking ill of us, even when we don't know where our deliverance will come from, we can turn to God in the honesty of our lives, expressing to him, Dear God, come get me. Come save me. I don't know if there's someone who was already resonating with that. Perhaps uh, the lack of urgency in our own prayers reveals that maybe we don't really believe that God wants to save us, not only for eternity, but from the circumstances and the situations we face presently. Let me give you a quick overview of the Psalms. Whenever the psalm speaks about salvation, it is not holding out salvation one day when we die, but every cry for salvation and liberation in the psalms as a corpus, as a body, speaks to this reality, that the people, their leaders, and those who wrote these psalms believe this, that God wants to save and liberate his people in real time, in the lives they live, in the present experiences that they have. Perhaps the lack of urgency and willingness to pray this way comes out of our disbelief that God ultimately can save us and liberate us even now. So this brief and urgent prayer that the psalmist prays shows us a few things. First, that God is able to save. It makes me wonder whether we, when we pray, expect God to act, to liberate. In fact, I, I want to say it this way, that while the people of God cried out in Egypt for liberation, when God began to liberate them, they didn't like it that much. When God liberates people, historically and biblically, 
They may think they want it until it happens, and then they realize the implications of being set free. Sometimes there's a journey, a growth, a maturing, a change that has to take place. The freedom that is given invites the people of God to live in a way that is contrary to the ways they've known before. And perhaps it is the same idea that we carry when we pray. God, we want to be saved from the circumstance, but sometimes we'd rather choose the dysfunction or the hurt or the pain of it than the liberation and the growth you desire. The psalmist makes clear that God can save and that he can't save himself. He considers him poor, himself poor and needy. If there's ever something that stands in the way of this kind of prayer in our culture, is that none of us wants to be poor or needy. None of us wants to stand before anybody vulnerably, saying that we cannot save ourselves. In fact, we live in a world in which we are constantly told that we have to make it on our own, so much so that our Christian faith is void of the vulnerability and honesty that says this, I do not only need Jesus to be my Savior when I've come to faith, but I need his salvation every day. I choose to live for him. I think in some ways in this introduction, and all God's people says, Amen. That's nervous laughter. I've come to discern that. That the psalmist perhaps invites us to name the deep cries of our own soul. The places from which our greatest urgency arises out of the awareness of our own inability and our vulnerability. Let me say it more simply. Maybe the psalmist is inviting us to pray the prayers that we are afraid to pray. I said to you at the outset of this particular scripture that, that I found it hard to resonate with, but then resonance came, and it came in a very strange way. I began to ask myself, why is it that the psalm doesn't resonate so deeply with me? And I said, oh, it's got to do with the enemies, right? It's got to do with the fact that the psalmist prays for dishonor and shame to come their way. Even, you know, even, I mean, you're going to be surprised when I say this. I mean, I, I actually have some people, a very few people, who don't like me. I know. I mean, I'm as gobsmacked as you. What's not to like? But, but I certainly don't have the kind of enemies that the psalmist is talking about. And, and so when I started to think about the text, I started in the place and the posture and in the shoes of the psalmist, thinking that the way to understand the psalm is to put myself as the offended and not the offender. In fact, I would say to you that a lot of us, when we read Scripture, is tempted to put ourselves in the good place or the needy place instead of seeing that the psalm does not only invite us to bring our darkest hurts vulnerably to God, but serves as a great caution that we will not become the very things that we are seeking liberation from. When Israel was liberated from Egypt, called by God unto purpose, 
made God's holy people. They were invited to become a people that would shed the light on the God who liberated them in such a way that they would not repeat the abuse and the slavery and the mistreatment of others, but indeed reflect a grace, a hope, and a redemption in God. It is true in life as it is for people groups. Those who have been offended can often become offensive. It is true that those who have been victimized can often become victimizers. It is true that those who have experienced hurt become people who hurt others. The reason we have to pay attention to Psalm 70 is because it invites us to take the shame, the pain, and the hurt of our own lives to the only one who can bear it for us so that we do not become that which is contrary to God's purpose. I should have some lip gloss. Um, I have a friend, I won't mention who he is. He once uh, put lip gloss on and he turned the whole tube open, like the whole thing. How weird is that? <laughs> I'm just saying I know how to use lip gloss properly. <laughs> so, the psalmist is being pursued, his life is being threatened, people want to hurt him, according to verse 2, and they have shamed him. I think the psalmist shows us a couple of things about what stands, what's at risk when we are in places like this. It is that we can respond in ways that takes us away from being who God wants us to be or draws us closer to him. I want to suggest very simply that there's two things that I've noted both in the text and in my own experience of life that we must pray God helps us and guards us from. The first is simply this, that when we cry out to God in times where we feel that others are threatening or hurting us, that it is often our impulse to retaliate. It is often our natural disposition, natural reaction to bring hurt to those who have hurt us. In verse 6, we read that those who say, aha, ha, turn back in shame, the word rendered here in the Hebrew uh, is a word that kind of speaks about an exclamation of, 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 of cynical pleasure at someone else's misfortune. It is often the case that that perhaps we cannot relate to the graphic nature of bloodthirsty enemies like Pharaoh pursuing the people to the Red Sea. But, but we also understand in life that there are times in which our actions, the way we live our lives, brings others to hard and difficult places. We understand that there are times in which what we say may land on the ears of others in ways that they are bound by for years and years and years. In fact, 
I have counseled people over the years that have reflected upon things that were said to them when they were children that has kept them to enslavement to a particular perspective, that they're not good enough, that they can't be what God wants them to be because of the bondage of those who have spoken these things over them. Sometimes, reading a psalm like this is easier to read from the posture of the ones in need of salvation. But it can also become a strong word of caution for those whom God has liberated to not become those whom God has liberated them from. I wonder this morning... If you would be bold enough to enter this text perhaps very differently. To answer the question, who has hurt you? Who are you tempted to hurt? Where are we acting in vindictive, retributive ways? Where are we trying to give back? payback people like the psalmist prays. And by the way, just because the psalmist prays for shame to return doesn't mean that's how we ought to pray. But the psalmist turns to God at the very least and says, God, take care of them the way that they were coming after me. But where in our own lives do we want to repay that which was done to us? Perhaps corporately speaking, where has the church hurt others? And where is the church leaning towards that brings more hurt instead of liberation and pain? Like the psalmist, we may feel that we want God to enact on others that which we have suffered by Jesus, who fulfills the law. All of it would say something so startling that would probably have upended even the psalmist in his best day when he says this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. No amens. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It seems to me that the psalmist stands in much need, as you and I do today, of the grace of God to help us to be the kind of people of such deep grace and mercy that we are willing to offer those undeserving the grace which we have received. Hurt people hurt people. Let me say a couple of just practical things about this. If you find yourself in your relationships uh, creating conflict and perpetually being the person that is at the center of things that, that just seems to go wrong. In, in fact, I, I want to put it to you this way, and I say this sympathetically, not accusatory, that sometimes we are very blind to the fact that there's something in us that makes us incapable at times of living at peace with others. Sometimes God will bring these things to our awareness. 
He will show us where it stems from. I'll be vulnerable with you. I've told the story before, and therefore I have the, the approval to tell it again. Right, Ruthie? I don't have my glasses on, so I don't know if she nodded or not. Did she nod? When we were first married, actually when we first moved here to Calgary, um, whenever Ruthann would go somewhere, whether with the kids or by herself, if she wasn't home at the time that she more or less said she would be home, I, I'd get nervous. And uh, I, would, uh, I would text her, and if the text wasn't answered, I remember one night she was out, it was really bad weather. You know, I'm a South African, I didn't know much about snow tires and ice and driving into the slide and all those things that you guys just grew up doing. I would always get nervous every time she was out. One day she was meeting with a friend and she had turned her phone off like any, any loving friend should do when they're with a friend. Can I get an amen? Ah. And I called and I called and I called. She got home. <laughs> I thought I was mad. She looked at me. She says, what's wrong with you? Why are you str- and, and I proceeded to say, well, you, you don't understand, Ruthann. You don't understand. I, I thought you were going to be home, and, 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 and I was worried, and I felt so justified in my concern. Do you know that this caused so much hurt to her because it, it made her feel that I didn't trust her word. It made her feel that I was trying to hover over her life. It wasn't until years later that through conversation with my wife, this truth dawned on me through God's leading and His Spirit, that because I had lost my family in a car accident so many years ago, every time my family's not with me, my irrational mind, conditioned by the trauma of my past, tells me something bad is going to happen again. And I react out of that, out of the hurt and the pain of my own experience, bringing hurt and pain to the woman I love. God has taught me over the years that there are some things in me that requires an attention, requires a healing, requires the presence of God. People, let me say this to you, it is an unhealthy thing to shove things down within us that God wants to liberate us from. It will show up in your relationships. It will show up in your marriages. It will show up in your life. And at times, it might surprise you because for so long, you have lived ignorant of the hurt and its impact. I don't call her or text her anymore. Other than to send her emojis with little hearts. Yeah. Yeah, Stephen, thank you for that tip. <laughs> little love notes during the day. You know what is my, my, one of my best ways to show my wife love? I, I text her and I say, I'm cooking tonight. That's, a, that's free for any man here. 
I don't think I'm ever more attractive to her when I do that. But how about you? What is the hurt that lingers? We all have it, scars, things done to us, said about us, that oftentimes exact a toll on our relationships. It amazes me that as the Lord sheds light in our hearts sometimes about the things that we had become so familiar with, the dysfunctional ways in perhaps in which we engage in relationships or withdraw from relationships, the ways in which the hurt has, has sat so long that it has become our normal reaction, that it, it is so hard for some of us to even find our way back. I, I just want to invite you this morning to begin with a simple prayer. God, show me. Show me that which has made me resistant to your love and to loving others. Show me that that shows up in me in a way that, that brings harm and hurt to others. Lord, show me so that I might bring it to you and that you might heal me. The second thing that I think stands in the way or can mislead us in times where we are in difficult places is that we become ashamed in such a way that we, we don't want to turn to God. The language of the psalm itself includes the use of shame. And though it is perhaps unfair to say that in Eastern cultures or in biblical days that, that honor and shame played a significant role without recognizing it still plays a significant role in our social relationships to this day. But in the Bible, honor and shame refer to social values that were foundational to how people engaged with one another. It was not just the individual's reputation that was at stake when someone did something wrong or brought shame on themselves. It was that that shame would transfer to the family and, and to the people from which they come. People would do everything to receive honor and to diminish shame. They would navigate life in such a way as to make sure that they would not lose the status they received by birth so as to not be ashamed for who they've become. But just as shame is to be understood in the Bible as not just an individual experience but has an impact on others. In fact, I think about 1 Samuel 17 when Goliath stood every day in front of the troops of King Saul, mocking them, taunting them, shaming them. That, he say, that example in Scripture shows us exactly what I just said is that shame has the ability to be not only carried forward to one person, but to people over time. There are some of us who, for example, have lived ashamed of who we are and where we come from and what we've done. There are some of us that have lived under the cloud of shame for so long that when we go through difficult times, we turn inward saying, God wants nothing to do with me. And yet, my friends, it is Jesus again who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me remove your shame, your garments of shame, and let me replace it with hope and delight. It is thus Jesus in the New Testament who challenges the honor and shame culture by saying, I've come to those who others have considered to be at the bottom rung of the social classes so that they would experience the honor that God brings to the least of these. 
Listen to me today. If you feel ashamed or if shame has lived in your heart and mind, keeping you from a dynamic encounter with the grace of God, that the psalmist invites us to pray to him that we would find the liberation from that which keeps us in shame. The Apostle Paul who says that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not just that what others have said of us may keep us in shame. It could be that we also feel shame in being faithful to who God has called us to be. It could be that we have experienced in this life times in which we have try to stand up as Christians, and we were told to sit down. It could be that as we try to be faithful to the Word of God in our life, we fear the shame others would place on us. It could be that some of us are ashamed to profess this faith because of how some other Christians have acted in the past. It could be that some of us are living with the shame of this particular season and time in our life because of our own Failure, our own sin, our own disappointment. How do we respond? I think it begins with the kind of honesty we see in the psalmist. It begins with turning to God and, and perhaps it begins with honestly naming that which shames us. What has been spoken over your life? What have you become convinced is true that is untrue? What have you done that you genuinely believe God cannot forgive you for? What are we ashamed of that makes us Belief that God does not care. We have to let God heal us. We have to invite him in to the real challenges that have created this pain. I often say to people who come to me with, with, with challenges that I am not trained clinically to counsel that we my role in their life is, is, is not to replace good counsel, trained counsel, uh, but I'm a spiritual counselor. And sometimes the best work I do is to, is to not try and figure out everything that has happened to make a person the way they are, but to invite them to let the Holy Spirit show them that which is true about who they are. <laughs> I, I feel like telling one more story and then I'll close. Can I get an amen, Wolf? Can you just say amen? Okay, Wolf speaks for everybody here, so I'll use this next few minutes. Uh, many years ago, I went to grief counseling. Uh, very, very reluctantly, someone told me I needed to go. <laughs> I said, hey, it's been years since my family died. I got this. I sat down with a gentleman who honestly would put everybody to sleep here when he starts talking. 
I thought, what a mistake. What a mistake. Uh, I sat on the, the couches that, that good, expensive clinical counselors have. They comfort, they warm, they are intended to help you relax so you can be trusting. I wasn't buying it. I sat up straight. I looked at the tissue box, or the Kleenex, as we call it, and I said, I don't need that. He asked me the first question. He says, uh, why are you here? <laughs> I said, this is my answer, Jody. I was like, very apologetic that I was here. I'm really wasting your time. I'm kind of already all figured out. I was a clinical psychologist who also happened to be a Christian. And he said to me, he says, you're a pastor, right? I said, yes. He says, I don't often see pastors. That's a Interesting comment, isn't it? Because you know, we're all put together. We got it all figured out. Uh, we talked a little bit, and uh, he said, what is it that you expect from me? I didn't give a very coherent answer because I didn't know. He said, okay, we'll close our eyes. We'll invite the Holy Spirit to bring any memories to mind. I said, oh, here we go. We prayed. I shared two experiences. One. Both experiences about my brother who was 17 at the time of his death and my little sister was 11. When I'd done sharing the stories, I looked at him and I said, again, apologetically, I don't know why I remembered those. It's kind of strange. And his response was, interesting. You didn't talk about your mom and dad. They passed away in the same accident, but you, you kind of talked just about your sister and your brother. And then he asked me in that very discerning voice, why is that? I've come to learn if you want to be a good uh, counselor, just ask good questions. In fact, I don't think he said much. And I was watching the time because I was paying much. <laughs> he asked me the next question. He says, what is it about these memories that you think brought them to mind? I said, um, I don't really know. But in both the stories I told, we don't have time here for it, I can tell you if you want to hear more. I felt responsible. I felt ashamed that I could not intervene, that I could not change the outcome, that I had not been a better brother. I, 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 was, I was living under the shame of the disappointment of not getting the chance to make things right with my brother and sister before they died. I was living under this mantle of, 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 of burden and, and, and complex emotions of guilt and loss and anger. And at this point in time, I'm using every Kleenex he has. And he says to me, let us pray. And I thought, oh, I need a hug. <laughs> and he started to pray for me. And he said, he said this, Lord, uh, something like this. He said, Lord, show my dear brother the truth of his experience. Show my dear brother the truth in his memory. And he said to me, my dear brother, it's like the Lord. I want you to imagine that the Lord is standing behind you and he is removing this heavy coat of shame. And he's saying to you, Stu, you have been carrying that which you can't carry on your own. Let me take it from your life. 
so that you would experience the freedom and liberation that only God can bring. The session came to a close. Now I'm sold on it. I'm like, when do we meet again? And he says to me, do you think we need to meet again? He says, my dear brother, God has done the work he needs to do here. You can come see me again if you want, but I don't think you need to return. I wonder, what is the heaviness? What is the, coat, the cloak that is drenched in shame that hangs over our shoulders? What is it that we have not confessed to God that can liberate us from that which holds us back? The psalmist pivots from his cry for relief and liberation, from being the one who is pursued to knowing how to respond. He chooses to pursue God instead of those who are coming after him. In verse 4, we read, Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. It is hard to search for God when we feel that life is coming after us in such a way and we're just not ready. It is hard to turn the energy we have away from retribution and hurt. It is even harder, dare I say, to call out that which keeps us enslaved to shame. But by the grace of God, the power of His Spirit, good godly counsel, I have experienced such liberation, and so can you. The psalmist knew where to take his hurt and his shame. Do we? As I close in prayer, I invite our worship team to lead us in a few songs. Uh, Kerry got me some cushions to kneel on. Did you see those? You see, you're missing out when you don't sit in the front of the church. You don't get to see these. Um, I kneeled down a few, a few times on the ground, and I said, I can't do that, Lord. I don't get up that easily from hard surface. So we got these because I think these, these altars are symbolic in some ways, but they're also a meaningful place to come and... and uh, and to bring the burdens to turn to God, to seek Him. And so I want to invite in the singing of the song, if you would love to come and pray up here, I would love to pray with you. And after we've sung, I will come up and conclude in a benediction. But perhaps there's some of us who needs to act upon that which is said. Here's what I do know, is that if we have become accustomed to suppressing things and holding them down, it is easy to get up from these chairs, leave, and not deal with them 
until they rear their ugly face. Perhaps it's not here, but you need to go and see somebody. You need to go to someone and, and seek forgiveness. Maybe you need to seek someone for spiritual counsel. But can I say this to you? We come here to hear the word of God so that our lives would be changed. Not just that we would hear a good sermon, sing good songs, but that we would be obedient to that which the Holy Spirit asks us to do. It is one thing to hear the word, but quite something different to obey it. I stand with you in the conviction of such a text as a person who desires to live in freedom. And so I invite you now to respond. Father God, thank you for the church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the psalmist. Honest prayer out of a hard place. Maybe for some of us, we are not in a hard place. And so this doesn't really check the boxes today. But I, I do pray that we would think carefully about the many ways in which perhaps you are speaking to us about our own hurt. You're speaking to us about that which we are ashamed of. The, the wonderful news of Jesus Christ, the good news as we call it, the gospel as we call it, is that we don't have to hide from you. We do not have to hide our sin from you. We do not have to hide our failures from you. But that as we confess them to you, you forgive us. And you grant us peace. So now as we come, may we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.